Good morning again, Redeemer. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 will be in verses 1 through 6. And if you are a guest or this is your uh, first time here, I just want to welcome you and let you know that we, um, I'm preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians. And so I did not sort of pull this passage out of the sky and say, hey, let's talk about incest today. Um, that is kind of where we are in God's word. And uh, parents, I trust that if your children have questions, uh, that you can uh, feel them at home. And if you need some pastoral guidance, we are here to walk with you in that. I do pray that um, some passages are serious, and um, this is one of them. I do pray that uh, you won't be like someone in the first service who got up and left until uh, the good news was heard. And uh, there is good news all over the Bible. And um, in the book of Hosea, the reason I had Jermaine read that is because she was a wayward wife and the Lord allured her back. And it was a picture of Israel. Those sins that you see in Leviticus, those sexual sins, that if God were to mark our iniquities, who in this room could stand? We believe in a big God and a big king who forgives big sin and gives big grace. Um, Jesus is that good and that beautiful. And so just stay with me, okay? All right, let's go. First Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. It is actually reported that there is sexual morality among you, a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans, for man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant, ought you rather not mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Let's pray. Uh, Father, uh, we need you now as we lean into your word, and we always need you. And you are a good father, and your word is corrective. Your word is restorative. Your word is true, and your word touches every part of our lives. Father, I pray that uh, Jesus would be beautiful and believable, and that um, those who may be straying might consider their ways and return to their first love. Father, I pray that you speak to your people through this servant, and Lord, uh, I need the same grace that um, is evident here, and so thank you, Lord, that I have it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's a question for you. If you could take a list and list, down, list out what are some marks of a healthy church? If you were the king for a day and you could dream up the perfect church, how would you f complete this sentence? A healthy church is 
blank. Or this blank is an important mark of a healthy church. So I don't want you to just kind of, I actually want you to write some things down. Like what are marks of a healthy church? And if you're not taking notes, just kind of make a mental note of, of what comes to mind. All right. If you go back 500 years or so, the reformers would say that there are three marks to a healthy church. Three marks are the faithful preaching of God's word, the proper administration of the sacraments, and they would say church discipline. That if you don't have the word being preached and you aren't administering the sacraments, that is not a church. It might be a gathering, but it's not a healthy church. Mark Dever in 1991 was asked by a congregation that was going through transition and searching for a pastor. He was asked, hey, like, help us. What, what are some marks of a healthy church? And Mark Dever wrote a letter. And in the letter, he laid out nine marks of a healthy church. If you go to ninemarks.com or .org, you can kind of see, and that was in 1991, uh, but more recently, 2013, John Frame, uh, who published his magnum opus, it's his systematic theology, and it's one of my favorites, um, but he has a chapter in there on the church, and just like the reformers, just like Mark Dever, John Frame says that, hey, church discipline is a mark of a healthy church. Frame, who is reformed, would go on to say that I don't think the reformers went far enough because Jesus says that the world will know you by your love. And so Frame would say that love, that, that believers who truly love one another, that's a mark of a church. Frame would also say the Great Commission. He says, what other institution on the planet has been tasked with the Great Commission to go and preach the good news and to make disciples, Right. He'd also add worship. Worship is a part of a healthy church. But notice the pattern that all of them are saying different and sometimes the same things. But the one thing they're all agreeing on is that church discipline is a mark of a healthy church. If you look at our passage this morning, verse 2, Paul says, let him who has done this be removed from you. Verses 4 and 5, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord, you're to deliver this man to Satan. Verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven. Verse 13, purge this evil person from among you and, and let that kind of wash over you. What Paul is actually commanding is discipline. Excommunicate this brother. Put him outside of the church. And that doesn't sound right, does it? I thought the door of the church is always open, right? Something is going on here, and this is what we call excommunication. It's sobering, it's scary, it's loving, it's biblical, it's gracious. And it's the second to last step of church discipline. There are many steps before it that escalate to it. And the good news is, by God's grace, there's a step after excommunication. 
More on that later. But we'll jump into our text. Now, to understand this text, I think you have, we have to have a history lesson. So give me five minutes to set it up because Paul's going to talk about leaven and he's going to talk about the feast and he's going to talk about purge and clean out. And if you, if you just read this passage, none of this makes sense. But if you step back through a history lesson, then it does. So here's where we got to go. You got to go back to Genesis 37 through 50. Some of you know that. As soon as I say that, that's the life of Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. They hated him. Joseph was put in a bitumen pit and left for dead. And then he ends up being taken into Egypt. And by the end of the book of Genesis, he is like the second in command to Pharaoh. And those same brothers who sold him into slavery, uh, encounter a famine in the land, and the only place that has bread is Egypt. And so those brothers actually have to go to Egypt to get food, and they run into the brother they thought was dead. And then it all came into sharper focus. What they intended for evil, God was intending and working out good that the people of Israel might live. And so they all moved, the whole family moved to Egypt and they lived in the land of Goshen and the Pharaoh there trusted and loved Joseph. He gave them everything they needed. But here's a problem. That Pharaoh died and Joseph died and a new Pharaoh came to power. And that's where Exodus begins, that during that time, the people of Israel have grown and grown. They have been fruitful and they have multiplied just like God commanded them at the beginning. But that Pharaoh hated them. He killed their firstborn sons. He put burdens on them they could not bear. And then they cried out to their Lord. And the Lord raised up Moses even though the Lord himself was the chief deliverer. And the Lord through Moses brought about 10 plagues. And you all remember this, this is like Sunday school review. And the first plague is blood and then there are frogs and then there are gnats and then there's hell and then there's locusts and then the livestock die and then there's uh, boils and then there's darkness all over the land. And there's a refrain in Exodus that while the Egyptians lived in darkness, the people of Israel had light. And so God was making a distinction between his people. My people over here in Goshen, you got light when they got darkness. When the locusts come, it will not devour your crops. When their livestock dies, yours will live. And so God is making a distinction that my people have my protection, my provision, my peace, and my presence in a way that they don't in Egypt, right? That's the whole first nine plagues. God favored Israel until the last plague. The last plague, God didn't care who you were. He says, we riding on this night. And when we ride through Egypt and Goshen, every firstborn son will die. Now, raise your hand if you're a firstborn son. I'm one. All right. So we would be out of here if you raise your hand. And God did not give Israel any kind of favor. I'm coming through your city and your city. But there was a way to receive mercy. You had to sacrifice the Passover lamb. On the first month, on the 10th day of that month, you had to secure a male lamb one years of age that was blemish free and perfect. 
and you had to keep it until the 14th day of the month. And on the 14th day of the month, the first month for Israel, you had to slaughter the Passover lamb and you had to take the blood from the Passover lamb and put it over your doorpost and Israel had to do it together at twilight. And if you were poor or a widow and could not afford to buy your own lamb, then your neighbor said, neighbor, you come into my house. You come celebrate the Passover with us. And so you might get a knock on the door. And if you truly loved your neighbor, you might go knock on their door and say, I know you're falling on hard times, but you with us tonight and you come into our house and we celebrate this together. And that night you slaughtered, that night you put blood over, that night you ate, whatever you did not eat, you had to burn up, and the bread you ate beginning that night had to be unleavened bread, meaning no yeast to make it rise, it had to be unleavened bread. And so right after Passover, you went right into the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And for seven days after Passover, no leaven in your house. If you had leaven in your house or ate bread with leaven in your bread, you were cut off from Israel. And then the Lord brought them out of bondage. He got them to Mount Sinai, Exodus 20. And he says, because you are my chosen people, you have my presence, my power, my provision, my protection. You can't live like the rest of the world. You're different. Because I redeemed you. I paid for you. I brought you out of Egypt. And then the Lord gives them the law. Have no other gods before me. No graven images. Do not use my name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not lie. Do not steal. Do not covet. In other words, my people known by me will live differently from the nations around you. And you're going to be living according to this. But the law came after the grace. You catch that? And then you know how humans are. God, you got to make it more plain. What you mean when you say we can't commit adultery? What do you have in mind with adultery? And God says, I'm glad you asked. If a man lies with a father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them will be put to death. Their blood is on them. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall be put to death. If a man or woman lies with an animal, he or she shall be put to death and the animal. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. You hear that language of purging? All right. Now, y'all got the backdrop? All of that is informing this text. So what's happening in this church? The first point is there, there is a big sin being committed by a brother. Now, I know when some of you hear big sin, you're like, wait a minute. I thought all sin is sin. And you are absolutely right. When you enter into a church, you are looking at sinners. We are not home yet. And God is still conforming us more and more to the image of King Jesus. But something is different here. 
Notice what it says, how the passage begins. It is reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and a better translation is probably everywhere it is reported that there is sexual morality among you. Paul's point that the talk of the town is what you guys have going on here. That's the first thing. Second, look at the rest of that verse, verse 1. There is sexual immorality among you, the church, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. And so that word for sexual morality is the Greek word that we get pornea or pornography from. And in Paul's day, pornea was kind of this bucket word for all sexual sin. And bestiality would be called pornea. And incest would be called pornea. Pornography would be called pornea. Supporting prostitution would be called pornea. Uh, adultery would be called pornea. And what Paul is saying is there is a kind of sexual immorality in the church that even the pagans don't tolerate. And that, that is saying something because to be called a Corinthian was to be called a licentious person. And Paul is actually saying, you guys got something going on in there that even the world around you knows is not right. Well, what is it? It says a man was having his father's wife. This is probably not a son laying with his mother because he's called his father's wife. This is more than likely a son whose father had remarried, perhaps his mother had died, his father remarried, more than likely a younger woman, and when the father and the woman moved in, they had a thing going on, the, the son had a thing going on with his stepmom. Now, we know that she's probably not a Christian because Paul did not single her out at all. The only person he singles out is the brother who goes to the church in Corinth. Later, Paul's going to say, what do we, the church, have to do with outsiders? And so Paul is probably saying, hey, she's a non-believer, and we, I mean, we don't know if the father has died, if they ran off together in Corinth. There is so much we don't know. But what we do know, this is a violation of Leviticus 18. A son is having his father's wife. Gordon Fee says the verb to have when used in sexual marital context is a euphemism for an enduring sexual relationship. By having her, Paul means that this brother is living with her sexually. Do you see? This is sin. And all sin is sin in word, in deed, in thought. And it's all heinous in the sight of the Lord, who is holy, holy, holy. But Jesus says things like, He who delivered me to you, Pilate, has the greater sin. John 19. Matthew 18, he who calls, causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it will be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Or what about James, where James says, not many of you should become teachers because teachers will be judged with greater strictness. And so what you're seeing in the scriptures is, yes, all sin is sin, but some sins are more heinous in the sight of the Lord. 
And our confession says this. What are those aggravations that make some sins more heinous than others? Sins receive their aggravations when the person offending, if they be older in age, greater experience of grace, notable for their profession and gifts and place and offices, if they're guides to others and whose example is likely to be followed by others. And here's what the confession is saying. If you are an old man and you prey on a young girl, that's heinous in the sight of the Lord. You, you catch what the Bible is getting at? But it also says if the parties offended are God and his attributes, the, in Christ, his grace, the spirit, his witnesses and workings against the saints, particularly the weak brothers. From the nature and the quality of the offense, if it be against the express letter of the law and not the spirit, if it breaks many commandments, contain in it many sins, if it is not only conceived in the heart, but it breaks forth in action and words and scandal, if done deliberately, willfully, presumptuously, impudently, boastingly, maliciously, frequently, obstinately, with delight and continuance. You, you catch what it's trying to do? All sin is sin, yes. And some are more heinous than others. And that's what Paul is judging here. This is not a breach of the spirit of the law. This is a breach of the letter of the law. This was not spiritual adultery. This was actual adultery. This was not a momentary lapse, but a continuance in the provision of the flesh this is a publicly scandalizing thing that profanes the name of God in the city of Corinth. It destroys the church. This woman who we believe is a non-believer is sleeping with a believer and the name of God is being blasphemed among this unbeliever by the man who was supposed to be pointing her to the king of kings. It's done deliberately and boastingly and frequently. And this is a warning. It is a warning. It is a warning. Because we probably think, how could he? We probably think, it's no way I would ever do that. You probably think, how does that happen? Here's how it happens. It's when you edge. It's when you make a provision of the flesh and you make another provision of the flesh and you walk further away from your first love and you walk further away from your first love and you continue to hide and live in secrecy and you continue to walk away from your first love step by step by step turning away and then the fall is great. This passage is a warning for every one of us in this room. Be killing our sin or it will be killing us. This is a warning. We're to cut off arms and gouge out eyes 
and to flee to our first love. We're to look to Jesus for joy and satisfaction and humility and grace. That's the first thing. The second thing is an even bigger sin being committed by the body. Now, remember Passover night? Remember that provision, that commandment that was made for those who did not have enough to buy their own lamb? What was the provision? You and your neighbor go together. Think about what is being communicated about Israel. You are your brother's keeper. You should care if the angel of death takes his house tonight. And you should invite him in. You are not on an island. You are bound together. And here's what you see happening in this church. The greater sin here is that they did absolutely nothing about it. To be technical, they were doing something. What were they doing? If you go back and read 1 Corinthians 1 through 4, what were they preoccupied with? You know what they were preoccupied with? Which teacher we liked. And so, so, so think about that. They over here talking about, I want to listen to more sermons. I like the way that preacher preaches. Or give me more podcasts, give me more conferences, give me more information. And they were ignoring what was happening over here. And that's why Paul says, and you are arrogant. He says, ought you not be mourning? You're over here talking about learning more stuff. And this is happening in your midst. That's the greater sin. They don't love enough. And they don't care enough about the glory of God and about the good of their brother. They want to learn more information. He says, and you have the nerve to be arrogant. Verse six, your boasting is not good when they should be mourning their boasting. And a grave problem in the church is exposed they are not as mature as they think. Look at verse 6. Do you not know, you who claim to be wise, you who think that I'm nothing, you who want to learn new stuff, do you not know this simple principle that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And leaven can be used positively and negatively in the Bible. It can be used positively like Jesus uses it in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It's the smallest of seed. And when it is planted, it becomes the largest garden plant. The kingdom of heaven is like a woman who put leaven in three measures of flour until the entire loaf was leavened. You know what Jesus was getting at? He was getting at the way the kingdom spreads. It starts small in Palestine, and here we are today, 2,000 years, talking about that Messiah. The kingdom of God is like leaven, and it's been leavened and leavened and spreading and spreading. 
That is leaven in the positive sense. Leaven is also used in the negative sense. In the same way that what is good can infect what is evil, that what is good can permeate the world, Jesus says what is evil can permeate a community. All of a sudden, when this man is allowed to live like this and do this, your sanctification is at stake. Now, when people see him doing that now, well, if he can do it, I can do it. If he can get away with it, it must be okay. If they're saying nothing about it, then it must be good. That's what Paul is saying. And you know what? I think we American Christians are more like the Corinthians than we'd like to think. We live in an individualistic, private, Western world. And we have the audacity to tell people that what I do with my life is my life. And what I do with my time is my time. And you stay in your lane and mind your business, and you let me stay in my lane and mind my business. That is the world we live in. We put boundaries up and stiff arms up to keep people away from us rather than drawing near to us and living in community. And that is the perfect recipe for failure. And here's what it does. It does something to both sides. All of a sudden, we around here scared to confront somebody about something. And then somebody else is prideful because if you confront me about something, well, I'm going to tell you to get out my face. Who are you to tell me anything about what I'm doing? And that is the perfect recipe for us to fall. John Wesley had something called the band meetings. And it was when Men got with men once a week, and women met with women once a week. And they were asked some really important questions. What known sins have you committed? How were you delivered? How have you been tempted this week? What are you unsure of? You see, here's the thing, believers. If we are living in community and we give other people the access to check us and to be curious from a place of love, then you don't have to walk in the darkness. You can walk in the light with people who love you and love the gospel and love the truth. But we stiff arm people. In our world. When you join the church, you are giving brothers and sisters the right to be in your life and in your business from a place of love and warmth. Which moves us to our final point. 
Paul's biblical, loving, and gracious response to this brother is church discipline. Now, I want you to notice in verse 4, Paul says, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, the you there is plural. So Paul is actually saying, when you all gather together in the name of the Lord Jesus, you all do this. Now, Paul is not with them. Paul isn't away, perhaps at Ephesus, and he's hearing these reports, and they're doing nothing about this sin, nothing about it. And so Paul kind of makes his judgment. And notice what he says. He says, I know that I'm absent in the body, verse 3, but I am present in the spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. So what does Paul mean? How are you present with us in spirit? And you're absent. Like, what is that about? Is he saying that union with Christ is that rich and that deep? Or is he saying, as my letter that I've written with my own hands make its way to your church, and I've been, been led by the Spirit to write this, and when it's read in your hearing, it's as if I'm there with you. I think that's what he means. But his point is remove him, verse 2. Deliver him to Satan, verse 5. Cleanse out the old leaven, verse 7. This is excommunication language. Now why? Why would Paul command this? This is not a recommendation, it's a command. First, for the glory of the Lord. Paul just told the church in Corinth, you are the temple, God's temple, and God's temple is holy. And if you destroy God's temple, God will destroy you. He just told them, you are God's field that is to be bearing fruit and growing up. You are God's children. That God's name is glorified when people see our good works. And the opposite is true. His name can be scandalized when God's people don't image him rightly in the world. And so we sing about God being holy, 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 holy. But our response to that is to come to Jesus, to receive grace, and to live holy lives. When our confession says holy, 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 but what we functionally do in the world is unholy, unholy, unholy scandal, then what we're doing is slandering the name of God. And so Paul disciplines for the glory of the Lord. The second is the good of the body. Look at what he says in verse 7 and 8. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so what Paul is saying, that Passover back there pointed us to a better Passover. And the new Passover lamb, the ultimate Passover lamb, was King Jesus. We're all guilty. And what God says is, I will put forth my perfect, beautiful, loving, gracious son. And I will kill him. 
for your sins. And his blood is now on you. And there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. You are pardoned. You are mine. You are loved. And remember they were supposed to eat unleavened bread. The context of that is beautiful. In their day, you baked with leavened bread and you would make a loaf and it would have leaven or yeast in it. And before you put it in the oven, you would take a piece, set it to the side and bake this loaf that already has leaven in it. The next time you bake bread, you would get your flour, your water, mix it up. You would take a piece of what you already saved and mix that with it and let it rise, you would save a piece and bake this. That cycle went on for an entire year, and guess when the cycle was broken? The cycle was broken during Passover. Because guess what's new after Passover? You are new. Put away what is old. This old stuff of lust and malice and evil and envy you put it away, and now you are a new holy lump. Now live like it. And so what Paul is saying, what's happening in the church, you're new. Your Passover lamb has been sacrificed. The grace of the Lord is yours. Now why are you mixing up with old leaven? You're new. Take away the old leaven. Because you are a new lump made clean in Christ Jesus. And what Paul is, when he commands discipline, here's what he's saying. He is saying, you church are new and you are holy. Put away that which is old, that your fellowship might be beautiful. This discipline is for the purity of the church. And it's for the humility of the church. Now, all of a sudden, when I see discipline happening, I might have been tempted, right? And now all of a sudden you're like, whoa, boy. God ain't to be played with. Let me turn back to my first love. You, you see how this works? It's for the holiness of the church and it's for the humility of the church. And it's for the good of the brother. Look at verse five. You are all to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Deliver him to Satan. What does that mean? I think Lion King gets this right. You remember that scene in Lion King when uh, Mufasa is showing Simba his land. He says, Simba, your entire kingdom is where the light shines. And Simba says, well, dad, what about the shadow lands over there? What about where the darkness is? And Mufasa says, that is not your kingdom. Your kingdom is here in the light. And you know who dwells in the shadow lands. That's what Scar is. That's what they will murder you. That's what they will hurt you. But Simba, as long as you stay here in Pride Rock, I'm your daddy. 
and I got my eyes on you and we're your family. And when you start edging, we'll come get you and we'll bring you back. And we operate by grace and mercy and love and tenderness and forgiveness in this community. But out there is a dog eat dog world. And if this man persists in deliberate, defiant sin, hand him over to the dark side. And you know what happens out there in the dark side? He starts to feel some pain. His marriage starts to hurt. There's some consequences, some earthly consequences that come with it. But notice that Paul is playing checkers and not chess. You see, checkers is real fast. Boom, 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 boom. It's done. Chess is more methodical. You might take some losses to sacrifice this pawn, but you can kind of win the game at the end. Here's what Paul is saying. Hand him over to Satan in that realm out there and it's going to hurt him. You know why? Because he's going to be distant from the covenant community. See, this one, like in our day, if we go through discipline, you know what we do? We go to another church because it's churches on every corner. In Paul's day, there was no other church in Corinth. That what you got is what you got. And so this brother is uninvited to church dinners. He's uninvited to the preaching and teaching of the word. He's uninvited to the table. And for a season, he has to go out there and be alone and think about what's happened and weigh the consequences of his actions. And the goal of discipline, beloved, is not punishment. It is that that brother or sister might have a Luke 15 moment. I'm away from my father's house and I'm bearing the consequences of my actions. And I know I'm pardoned in King Jesus, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to turn around and go to my father's house where there is mercy and community and grace and compassion. That's what Paul says hand him over so that in the day of Christ Jesus, he might be saved. Now, here's the thing. How do we know? Because I mentioned that excommunication is not the last step of church discipline. There's another step that should come after it. And you know what that is? Reclamation restoration and repentance. Now, how do we know that God opens wide his hands and heart for the sinner who strayed? Jesus says there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than the 99 who don't need repentance. Think about that. The angels themselves stand on the edge of their seats ready to throw a party because that sinner who strayed is now back. Think about the book of Hosea. It is about a straying wife pointing us to a straying people and a big God who says, I will allure her home back to me and she will no longer go after her bells. She will be my daughter. I will be her husband and she will cry out my God. Think about, all right, here's what you do. Turn to 2 Corinthians 2 for me and I want y'all to see it and we're going to finish after that. 2 Corinthians 2, and let's start at verse 5. 
2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has not caused it to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. This is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I, what, indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Do this so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Many scholars think the command to cast out in 1 Corinthians 5 is followed up with a second letter in 2 Corinthians, where Paul is actually saying, the one that was cast out, forgive them and bring them back lest we be outwitted by Satan. And they begin to think that there is no grace and no mercy and no hope and no love. He says, covenant community, bring them back. Why would that be our posture? Because it's the posture of King Jesus who welcomes sinners. So I'm going to close with this. Excommunication is one, the second to last step of discipline. But did you know that we are all and should be all under discipline regularly? Discipline happens right here in the pulpit. When the word of God is preached, it is discipline. It is God calling us back to himself. It is God reminding us of our grace that is ours in Jesus. It is God beckoning us to turn from our idols and to return to our first love. And so in one sense, we are all under discipline all the time when the word of God is being rightly read. God as a father is getting in there and correcting and reorganizing and reaffirming and reguiding us. So that's the first thing. Second, if someone is in sin or sins against you, you do have a role to play in their sanctification. I'm not proposing that we become the nosy, suspicious, prying neighbor, always assuming that everyone has some hidden sin, that it is your job to shine light on. I'm not talking about that. But I am talking about those moments when we're sinned against. What do we do? First Peter says, love one another earnestly. Love covers a multitude of sins. Sometimes the proper response is forgiveness and overlooking and saying nothing and trusting that the same spirit that's at work in your heart is at work in theirs. And if this can't be done, we move to Matthew chapter 7. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye but do not notice the log in your own? Then we begin to examine ourselves and our own motives. 
And then if we can't put it away, then we go to Matthew 18 and we go to our brother or sister privately and in person, not an email, not a text, but we sit face to face across from the person that has sinned against us. And if we are aware that there is sin, then we leave our gifts and we go to our brother or sister to be reconciled. Ideally, we meet each other coming to each other. And if that doesn't work, we take one or two other witnesses. And if that doesn't work, we come to the church, the church being the elders. And if the elders get involved and there is no change, no repentance, then Jesus says you treat this person like a Gentile. Same word that Paul uses here. But notice the steps. You don't just get to excommunication. You start with being under the word. You start with person to person. You start with person to person. Then you bring it to leaders. And then you get there. And all of that, beloved, is grace. It's loving. And it's biblical. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word and even hard texts that we need to weigh and consider. Father, I pray for those of us, Lord, who might uh, be edging and straying away from the flock. Would you, by your spirit and your word and the saints, call them back? Father, I pray for those who have uh, spent time in the dark places. I pray that they would know the gospel that your arms are open so wide for sinners who repent and turn to King Jesus. You tell us in your word that you will separate our sins from us as far as the east is from the west, and you will remember them no more. Thank you, King Jesus, for becoming sin for us, that we in him might become righteousness. And I pray, Lord, that as we sing this final hymn, that we would do so with faith, believing the gracious and good news of the gospel. Do this for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.